Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Catherine Viner, the first female editor-in-chief of The Guardian. Catherine, you grew up in the north of England. You sound like you were a pretty active and politicised teenager, joining the youth campaign for nuclear disarmament, the anti-apartheid movement, even though the nearest groups were 25 miles away. What motivated you to get involved in all of that rather than listen to music and go out with your friends, which is presumably what teenagers are supposed to do in the north of England? Oh, I did a lot of that as well. Terrific. I'm pleased um, to hear it. It was very, very... uh... It was very much going out and uh, hanging out with friends and underage drinking. But I did just get very interested in politics. I think it did start with feminism, actually. There was this British magazine at the time called Spare Rib that I found very exciting. And, you know, it was a very political time in the north of England. It was the 80s and, you know, Margaret Thatcher was trying to tear apart society to some great effect. And so it was very hard to ignore it. You know, I had... I even had relatives out on the minor strike and things like that. So it wasn't that hard to be politicised. But as I say, because I grew up in a small town, it was rather individual as action. And uh, there was still, you know, Duran Duran to listen to and boys to fancy and nightclubs to try and get into. So I wouldn't say I was the most political person in the world. And Spare Rib, tell me about that. Yeah. What was that like? I always remember they produced a book that was specially for girls and it was all about, I think it was called something ridiculous like Girls Are Fabulous. <laughs> My brother used to make fun of it. Girls are fabulous. <laughs> but, you know, it was just like loads of sort of encouraging stories. So in your family home, you, your brother, there was sort of equal treatment, equal expectations? Yes, I was two years older than my brother and, and we were very close, but it was it was certainly, I think we were treated equally, I would say that, yes. When you were at school, you had a newspaper article published in The Guardian, <laughs> yes. given what's happened since. I know. That's kind of a wonderful place to start. <laughs> yeah. What made you think as a school kid, I know, I'm going to yeah. bust out a piece for The Guardian? <laughs> well, The Guardian arrived every day at my home. It was delivered every day and so it was, a, it was already a big part of my life and at the time they had a section called Young Guardian which was aimed at teenagers so which I really enjoyed reading. You know I obviously had an eye for a story Julia because <laughs> I was the last year to do the O-levels which was this British exam that was replaced the, the year after by GCSEs which are still in place and so I wrote an article about the last days of the O-level and I just sent it in. You know I was reading a lot of Sylvia Plath at the time and, and, and she used to 
send in articles all the time to publications. And so that's what I decided I was going to do. And uh, yeah, and they published it when I was 16. It was a very exciting day. I mean, they paid me about 10 quid for it, which I definitely know is below the market rate. <laughs> but, you know, child exploitation. And what was that like, the thrill of seeing your words in print for the first time? Yeah, it was really amazing. But one of the things that sort of I find quite strange looking back is that I still didn't really think that I could be a journalist. You know, I was in my, uh, I had these careers lessons and I remember saying, what about journalism? And the careers teacher sort of scoffed and said, she actually said, that's for men in suits in London, something like that. Posh men in suits in London. And it, so it was very much, I suppose that was, I mean, that's, I, I mean, that was gendered, but it wasn't, I didn't feel that was mostly about gender, actually. I felt that was as much about class and being from the North and you know, just being a sort of separate thing. So, and it really stuck in my mind that, and I just thought, oh, okay, then, you know, that isn't for me. And it took, and it was years and years and years later before I realised that I might have a chance at it. And so you didn't even feel angered or upset that you had this idea about, you know, potentially journalism mm. and somehow it was ruled out as not for, not for girls from the north of England? I mean, I think I just wanted to be a writer in some way. And so I just thought, you know, I'll go and do some other kind of writing and some, some idea about being a poet or something, you know, it was all a bit vague. It wasn't like I was desperate to be a journalist and that was all I wanted to do. I just, yeah, but it's, it's quite curious to me looking back that I didn't rebel against it more. It says something then about the power of role models because you went on to study at Oxford and in your final year you won a journalism competition organised by The Guardian's <laughs> Woman's Page. It's a theme. So, yeah. yeah, The Guardian has been calling to you <laughs> yeah. across your whole life uh, and you were advised by Louise Chun, who was then the editor of the Women's Page at The Guardian, that you should pursue a career in journalism. <laughs> so if you hadn't met her, would you have gone into something different? Would journalism have been kind of ruled out in your mind? I didn't do proper journalism all the time I was at Oxford. You know, again, I felt, I'm not going to emphasise it too much, but I felt quite socially alienated by the sort of journalistic scene at Oxford. It was very, I found it just very alienating and it, it didn't feel like it was for me. And so, I mean, I did some local stuff in the college and sort of some fun things, sort of fanzine type things. And, and I'd written for fanzines for the Smiths and things like that. But it was only when Louise said that to me that it was such a shocking thing. And, you know, it's amazing to me when, because I, I look back at the week I edited the women's page of The Guardian and we wrote all these articles and you know they're really good I can see that now telling the 21 year old me that they were so good and so I but I had no sense that I had that myself and if she hadn't pointed that out to me I mean maybe I'd have come to it eventually but I really it was like a light bulb going off and it, I, I think it's a really interesting thing about people's lives and people's expectations that sometimes you just need someone to call something out for you you know you're not you're very good at this sometimes as well I found as a manager of people if you say to someone you know you're not that good at that that you'd like to be good at, but you're really good at this other thing. And that can help them too, even if it's disappointing. You know, I really think that's why feedback's so important. So I was really grateful to her for pointing that out to me. And of course, journalism did capture you. And you originally worked at the women's magazine, Cosmopolitan, and then at the Sunday Times before moving to, you guessed it, The Guardian. <laughs> We're definitely going to get there. At least there. I did a few other places first, <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. Um, can you compare and contrast those environments? I yeah. mean, people hearing those words, they'd know what Cosmo is. They'd think The Sunday Times, you know, very uh, official. The Guardian, of course, has a reputation second to none. What was that like, that movement, and how would you compare the environments, particularly for a woman? So it's, all three were in, have been incredibly happy experiences. I really think as soon as I got into journalism, I was like, yes, this is it. I know what I want to do. So at Cosmopolitan, you know, I moved to London for the first time. The officers were in 
Soho in the West End. I had this fantastic editor called Marcel Dargy Smith, who was a real legend. And it was in that phase in Cosmopolitan that was quite a serious time for women's magazines. So we had a brilliant feature, I remember, by Maggie O'Kane about rape as a weapon of war in Bosnia. I edited a section called News and Careers, which was about kind of news snippets about women's lives and things that were changing around the world for women and a careers advice to how to, to do well in your career and stuff like that. Honestly, I had an absolute ball working with all these brilliant women who were all older than me and taught me so much and, you know, stayed good friends since. And so it was a really fantastic experience. The Sunday Times was also fun. Again, there were lots of were this group of young people who who were around at the same time, you know, and uh, I had a great editor there as well who really took a chance on me and sent me off on stories all around the world. And I really enjoyed that. But I think, you know, I always did have a thing about The Guardian from childhood. I used to have this superstition that when my bus, the 63 bus, which goes from King's Cross to Peckham, where I was living, and I used to have a superstition that I had to look out of the window of the bus at The Guardian's offices, as were then. And then, if you know, if I did that every time, then maybe one day I'd end up working there. Oh. And when I got to The Guardian, it was just, yeah, this is this is where I've always wanted to work. People are fantastic, you know, to um, be in a place where, you know, you're so politically aligned with the aims of the of the paper and what it stands for is just it's just such a wonderful way to work. And uh, yeah, I loved it from the word go. And when you first started at The Guardian, you spent a period working on the women's page. Did you feel that was sort of the secondary bit of the paper? Was it viewed like that at The Guardian? How did you see it? I mean, I think it was once. There was a period of the women's page, The Guardian, which is, I think it's the longest running women's page, I think, in the world. And it was originally called Just for Women. (laughs) Just for Women. (laughs) Just to make sure, you know, this is the only bit you can manage, ladies. By the time I got there, it was very much not seen as that. You know, it was more like a sort sort of feminist perspective on the world and perhaps some issues that wouldn't be covered otherwise. And I was in quite a junior job and there was a really brilliant women's editor, Sally Wheel. And it was just a fantastic, creative, you know, ideas filled place to work. And did the environment at The Guardian, at the Sunday Times, did it have any element of that men in suits thing that you'd first imagined about journalism or first been told to imagine about journalism? (laughs) I mean, absolutely. And it still does. The industry. I think The Guardian is obviously, as you'd expect, sort of better than other places. And and by the time I got to The Guardian, and I think perhaps because I was on the women's page, I sort of developed this sort of bolshy approach to sort of going in and complaining about headlines or photographs of women or captions or whatever. And I always remember one conference went in and deputy editor said, and Kath, before you say anything, we've seen the caption on page 27. The sub who wrote it is having lessons in what he's done wrong and it'll never happen again. And I didn't even know what he's talking about because I hadn't seen that (laughs) caption but I thought oh I'm having an impact here if they're worried about sexist captions on page 27 so it was the environment that let me do that you know not not many environments would let you do that and then let you progress and thrive so and time wise when is this that you were the caller out of the sex oh no I'd still that was still really early I'd be sort of late 20s so yeah it it was yeah and you didn't feel daunted by being the one who always went in and said that picture's wrong that caption's wrong I think you know there's a way to do it isn't there you know people are often trying in good faith they might have made a mistake unconsciously not realizing they were doing it or or they, may, they might just need to understand more about the subject. So we try and do it in, in a humorous way or in an understanding way rather than a, an aggressive way. Mm, but their doors were open to that. They, they yeah, were prepared to hear. Yeah. That's terrific. Around this time when you were uh, at The Guardian, the women's page, uh, you wrote an article entitled Feminism is used for everything these days except the fight for true equality. <laughs> 
Do you remember what you meant by that <laughs> statement and does it resonate with you now or do you think we've moved on? I don't remember what specifically provoked it. It was probably something that day that I then quickly knocked a piece out probably. But I think, as I recall at the time, probably the late 90s, that I felt like it was being used to sell things. Uh, as sort of It's like a sort of consumerist tactic. And that's definitely got worse. And I think it was also being used to sort of dress up all kinds of misogyny as a feminist act. So people sort of saying, you know, I've got these breast implants and that's a feminist act and I'm not attacking women who do that but don't claim it as a feminist act you know because it's not advancing the cause of equality it might make you feel good although I might question whether it would but it's not going to be a feminist act I and think that, think- that was about but this was probably 20 years ago so. <laughs> and and do you still think that there's an element of that in feminist discourse today or the way the word feminist is used today I feel a bit confused about where feminism is right now, to be honest. I was listening to a podcast with Gia Tolentino earlier and, you know, about how so much of women's lives now about self-improvement that we must endlessly be getting better and better and better at everything. There's a load of spending money attached to all of those getting better, whether it's uh, expensive soul cycle class or expensive gym clothes or Botox or whatever people are doing and that it's a sort of endless pursuit of perfection but for for what end I don't really know and it certainly doesn't seem to be advancing the cause of equality so I do sort of I really I really worry about that I think life has got so much harder for women since you know the boom of social media I think women are being hounded out of public spaces and you know just as there are more women than ever in all sorts of places including politics we're being asked to deal with quite a different level of attack and exposure but then sort of everybody is. And I think that's it. Just it's, it's, I'm very worried about that generally. Well, let's come to that because, of course, across your career, you've been there for the big digital disruption of print media and it's changed everything. And in some ways, you would think to yourself, well, maybe it's changed the structures and rhythms of journalism in a way which is better for women and women's career paths. So, you know, you don't have to be in the newsroom at precisely X time of night when the newspaper is about to go to the printers because so much is done online now. You could still be connected at home. Consequently, more flexible working styles are possible. But it seems to me whilst that's true, so much has got harsher and faster in a way that potentially excludes women. How do you see that balance, the impact of new media styles Mm. for women? Well, I think digital, the sooner everyone sort of accepts that digital is completely blown apart everything in every aspect of life, uh, the better. Because, I mean, although we've just talked a lot over the years about how, what it's been doing to media, it's, it's, it's blowing apart absolutely everything. And we just have to accept that we're the generation living through that transition. And that's quite a privilege. So how do we make it as positive as possible? But what concerns me is that the people building the algorithms, they're not generally women. The people who have invented the tech companies, the people who are making the fortunes out of the tech companies, but, but the people who are building the algorithms that are now part of our lives, the surveillance. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...that is part of our lives. They are not women. And where that leaves us, you know, whether it's a new kind of erasure, as well as, as you say, a new kind of sort of harshness, it's a big concern. I think although it's what's interesting, some of the most interesting people critiquing that are women like uh, Shoshana Zuboff with her surveillance capitalism or like Gia Tolentino, who I mentioned, and Naomi ha- Klein. Yeah. yeah. How has it changed the way you work and journalists work? I mean, if you were coming to The Guardian today at the age that you first went to The Guardian, what would be different for you? I have to just say that what would be different from the editors in the past when I read their diaries, it just makes me laugh so much. So, you know, they would come in at about 11. This is some time ago. This is definitely no editor who's alive. (laughs) I mean, we're talking sort of, you know, beginning of the 20th century, but they'd come in really late. And then they'd go out for a long lunch with a politician. They'd sort of wander about, uh, meet a few other people. And then they'd sort of pitch up for a couple of hours in the early evening it's amazing what a life you know I'm really envious but no I think uh, uh, somebody who's 27 now joining the Guardian they move much more quickly than we did you know everything is is for now it's whereas when I joined everything was for tomorrow they would be constantly connected in ways that are I think largely positive as long as we can draw boundaries around them so you know we we can contact them really quickly if there's a new development in the story they're on they don't have to be seated at their desk they can be somewhere else they can constantly be in contact with us they will be on social media and and I think that is a a bit of a trap for journalists because sometimes they feel that if they say tweet all day long then they they've done some valuable work and they almost certainly haven't you know it's much better to be out there talking to people gathering stories and so the traditions the good traditions of good journalism should be the same which is, you know, the best way to get stories is to talk to people and build relationships and get to know people. And so they tr- you trust each other and so on like that and so on. And there are some new skills that are needed, whether that's being able to analyse data sets or understand how the digital world works. There are different kinds of skills and that brings in a wider array of people. But, you know, perhaps the best, the most important aspects of journalism, though, are still the same. And of course, a big difference for that 27-year-old today is that they'd be working for a female (laughs) editor-in-chief. So can you describe how you became editor-in-chief? The Guardian has its own structures for making these choices, (laughs) but this is an historic and amazing achievement. Tell me about it through your eyes. So I'd I'd done lots of really interesting jobs at The Guardian over the years. So I edited Weekend Magazine for several years. I edited G2. I was the first female features editor, so that's um, a really lovely job. I was deputy editor, was comment at Saturday editor. So lots of really important, interesting jobs. And then, as you know, I moved to Australia to launch The Guardian in Australia. And actually, I really think for me, that was a incredibly important in my journey to be editor-in-chief because when you're at work in Australia and awake, everyone in Britain is asleep. <laughs> so I would joke, but I wasn't really joking, that I was the most senior person awake. So I would make the decision. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I also just remember this, you know, we, we had to I had to make those a lot of big decisions sometimes because everybody would be asleep, not just for Australia, but for the whole of the Guardian. Because we launched the Guardian Australia from scratch, I had to do quite a lot of PR. I was representing the Guardian a lot. And I really, really enjoyed being the person in charge. I really enjoyed running something. in, And it was also it was just a brilliant experience in, in many ways, because I think Australia really wanted the Guardian there, as has been proved in the years since when it's uh, absolutely flourishing. It was really important for my confidence and my sort of self-image and my belief that I could do it. 
And then I moved to New York to edit The Guardian in, in America. And I would have loved to do that for longer, but I'd only been doing it for a few months when the editor-in-chief resigned. And I must be he'd been editor for 20 years, as had the editor before him and the editor before him. And so I knew much as I live, love, love living in New York, this was my one chance to apply. And this, yes, the way the process works at The Guardian is you're officially appointed by the Scott Trust, which is the organisation that it's a sort of trust that owns The Guardian. There's no shareholders, there's no billionaire owner, which is one of the reasons why I think readers can trust The Guardian journalism so much is that there's nobody to pull strings. There's just the editor and the journalists. So the Scott Trust appoints the editor, but for the last few editorships, the uh, union has organised a vote among the staff. And the Scott Trust always say that they don't have to follow that, but obviously it's a big feather in your cap if you win that. So that happened first and that was very demanding. I was staying in a hotel because my flat was in New York and my place in London was rented out and it was all very complicated and we had this hustings which honestly was one of the most stressful days of my life because it was where journalists just asked questions at the four <laughs> internal candidates. That, that is a fairly terrifying prospect, I mean, it was, being on the hustings and yeah. the voters are journalists. Yes. Yeah, but that's terrifying. I mean, it just took sort of days to get the adrenaline out of my system afterwards, you know. And you saw I prepared endless, I prepared about sort of 40 themes that I thought might come up and answers to each of the 40 themes, you know. And then, of course, a couple that I hadn't prepared came up and I had to wing it anyway. So that was very demanding. And But, I, you know, I won the staff vote. There were four of us, but I won it on the first round. So that was really and were exciting. all the other candidates men? No, no, no. There were three women and a, a man. Wow. Yeah. But there were some external candidates as well. Some of them quite serious. So, I, yes, I won the staff vote. And then I had the Scott Trust and there were endless rounds in my memory, endless rounds of interviews with different people. There's also a board that runs The Guardian. So I had to be interviewed by the board as well. And then it was yeah, it was a five week process. And um, and then you get a, a I got a phone call from the chair of the Scott Trust, Liz Vaughan. And she started saying, because there's a formula of words that your only instruction as the new editor is to keep the Guardian going as heretofore. You're not supposed to have guidance in any other way. So, you know, it's a liberal and progressive news organisation. You know, there's some really interesting ideas laid down by C.P. Scott, who's our editor for 57 years, our legendary editor. And you're expected to follow those. But that's it. The only instruction is to carry on as heretofore. So when Liz rang me up and she said, and I heard the heretofore word, I thought, well, she's not going to say that to any of you who hasn't got the job. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then and then all hell broke loose, really. So that, that was that was how I got the job. <laughs> and comparing that journey to a different kind of newspaper <laughs> where, you know, and with, whether it was a progressive newspaper or a more conservative newspaper, where who ended up as the editor-in-chief would be, presume very formalised selection, but a lot of it would be on the sort of old networking basis. Can you compare the two? Was the journey in The Guardian an easier one compared with <laughs> some of that more traditional newspaper style? Well, since the editor of the uh, London Evening Standard is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer and with zero journalistic experience, yes, I think networking definitely helped there. <laughs> I didn't see him putting the years of editing sections of The Guardian like I did. Look, look good luck to him. I think it's a much harder process at The Guardian, but it's certainly one that is more meritocratic. You know, I would not have had a chance at the newspapers that are going to recruit in terms of who goes to which club or 
who's in with who. But I obviously have a chance if it's on the quality of my work. And I felt like I had a really good catalogue to show for that and the quality of my vision for The Guardian. And, and because I really understand The Guardian, I feel it in my bones. I've loved it so long that I felt like I was really able to offer a strong vision for it as well. And looking around the world where we know disproportionately that men continue to be news media leaders, is it that, the clubs, the networking, the boys' network, instructions of owners that's keeping women out from those top leadership positions? I mean, I think the old boys' network is, is the worst in the world is in Britain, isn't it? So probably there's nowhere quite as bad as, as that. But I think there are a sort of traditional views in many parts of the world for what makes a good journalist. But, you know, women all around the world are breaking that model and showing that, you know, holding the powerful to account, anyone can do that if they want to. So it's trying to trying to break the structures around that. And how family friendly can journalism be? I wouldn't say it's the most family friendly job in the world. I have to admit that because if a story breaks, a story breaks and it's you sort of have to drop everything. I don't have children, but plenty of women with children do do it. And we've had some really great success in recent years by doing job shares at a very senior level. Especially, I find it especially works if two women have got exactly the same interest in making it work. You know, they might have kids of a similar age, whatever. And, you know, we had job shares for political editor, which is a real first. It was the first ever woman political editor, but we had two of them. And and one of them's moved to a different job now but and, and left got a woman political editor still. And, and she makes it work with young kids. I mean, you know, I think... It's about give and take and making sure you're there for the big things and the important things and everybody being as flexible as they can. But when I always say to women, I always try and have a meeting with women who uh, go off and have babies before they go. And I think one of the important things is just is to know that if they want to stay at a senior level, they absolutely can. We've got loads of examples of senior job shares or just doing a senior job share for a few years and then going back to full time after a few years and making sure that that works. And and, it, and you really can. You really can. You've just stated you never had children. Obviously, I've never had children. But you said in the past when questioned about not having children that it's an issue that's brought up to divide women and that we've seen that in journalism, in politics, in other industries. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I feel that very strongly. I just th- I think women collectively, we've got so much more in common than whether we've got to have children or not. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why women do and don't have children. And it's not necessarily the most interesting thing about them. But it's also, I mean, you know, the the main issue I think that gets in women's way structurally of progressing at work is that they take time off to have children. So the most that's why it's the most important thing structurally that employers can do is try and make that work. So it's shared parental leave, flexible working, whatever can make it work, as I say, job shares. And I think the best thing that women without children can do is facilitate that and make help make that happen because then, you know, we all progress. You know, I think it's in everyone's interest if if more and more women progress. At The Guardian, you've proven that uh, readers are prepared to make contributions, some financial contributions to keep great journalism going and you've balanced the books, generated greater revenue, a fantastic achievement. What would you say has been the difference between a woman doing the editor-in-chief role as compared with a man? Is there a unique thing you say or you think you've brought to it that would only have happened under a woman (laughs) editor-in-chief or is really being a great editor, being a great (laughs) editor, irrespective of gender? I mean, I I always think that you bring all of your life experiences to what you do. So I, you know, I definitely edit differently from a, a man because I'm a woman, but I also edit differently because I'm from the North than if I was from the South. I edit differently because I'm state educated, perhaps because I don't have children, 
just all of your life experiences that you bring to it, I think. So I'm not sure how to isolate, isolate differently other than that. I understand. Catherine, at the end of these podcasts, we ask a few standard questions, one of which is a fact. And to get your response to the following fact, analysis commissioned by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, that's us, found that 77% of people quoted as experts in online news articles by the main UK news outlets are men. I'm surprised it's so low. Oh, <laughs> It is a problem. So many, you know, so many of the experts put up by universities and uh, businesses and NGOs are men. It's the journalist also needs to be searching for more women to quote, but also the organisations need to put up more women too, I think. Mm. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to deal with in your career? So we've got a, we have conference every day at work. And your news conference this is to set conference, the agenda. To set yeah. the agenda. And it's a sort of news meeting. We call it conference, but it's just a meeting. But everyone in the office can come to it. And when I was in my late 20s in the meeting, much older a man, to illustrate a point, rubbed his hand up and down my knee. Oh. <laughs> so that's probably the worst thing that's happened to me in the workplace. Right. One wonders what point he could possibly have been <laughs> illustrating. If instead of being editor-in-chief at The Guardian... Uh, we gave you global power. You could change anything with a blink of an eye, twitch of a nose. What would you do to make women's lives better? No. One thing. So I think the two biggest problems facing societies around the world are violence against women and violence against the earth. And I think they're linked. I think they're both about some kind of hatred of where we come from. And so I would like both of those to stop. And if you could achieve that in your brief <laughs> stint of uh, ruling the world, we'd all be very grateful. Virginia Woolf says, I want to write a novel about silence, the things people don't say. Catherine says? Well, make sure you say it and just say it to The Guardian. <laughs> like that. Catherine, thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. And come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.